0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. There's thousands of types of cheese in the world. I certainly own that in my French heritage for sure and they rely on lactic acid bacteria. There's a small family, phylogenetically, of bacteria that transform lactose from milk into lactate or lactic acid and acidify milk to enable coagulation, so turn liquid milk into solid things like yogurts, sour creams. Sometimes they are very solid, like, you know, an age. H- Cheddar. When you make a dairy product, there are many challenges. One of the inconveniences of industrial operation is that milk is not sterile when it comes to bacteria. It's also not sterile when it comes to viruses. Now, luckily for humans, most viruses in the environment don't attack human species. They actually attack bacterial species. And viruses of bacteria are called bacteriophage. If you used to be French, like I used to be French, you have to say bacteriophage. And if you're a dairy manufacturer and you're using Streptococcus, you buy industrial-scale starter cultures. It's a population of bacteria that is put into a large vat to start the fermentation process. But occasionally, those fermentation would fail because the bacteriophages, those bacteriophages, would find its way to the milk. And when that phage is there, it's going to attack, eat, and kill the bacterium used to ferment the milk. And then you get, you get rotten milk. <laughs> this is a bad day. That phage is a pain. It's very inconvenient. So in the ongoing warfare between small viruses and infect bacteria, this is a very dynamic arms race. Viruses are very nimble, very small, they mutate very fast, they're in high numbers, they don't need to do many things, just need to infect hosts, so the the simplicity of a virus is just unbelievable, fantastic. The host has to do all the work, that's why viruses are so hard to fight. I was a new employee working on a project that was industrially sponsored by a company called Denisco. Uh, that was a very large, you know, food ingredient manufacturing company out of Denmark. So we wanted to understand what is in the genome of those bacteria that make great yogurt and great cheese, and how is it that they work. I was like, a you know, freshly minted PhD guy, right, that had expertise in doing molecular biology, lactic acid bacteria. One of my first jobs was to assemble those genomes. Can we get the genome data, and can we put the puzzle together? And the answer is yes, about 98 to 99% of it, Uh, but when you come to the CRISPR, it breaks down. A CRISPR is actually an array. It's a piece of DNA that contains two different kinds of parts. One is the CRISPR repeat. And the repeat is the defining core element of a CRISPR. All those repeats are physically and genetically separated by something called a spacer. They are spaced out. So essentially what a CRISPR array is a sequential combination of a CRISPR repeat, a spacer, a CRISPR repeat, a spacer, a CRISPR repeat, a spacer, and so on and so forth. The repeats are always the same, so actually they provide very little information with regards to where they come from or what they do, because they're all the same. In contrast, the spatial sequences are all pretty peculiar. They are different. They are distinct. By definition CRISPR is an acronym, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's a very good descriptor. So clustered means co-located together at one location. Regularly interspaced regards the periodicity and order with which different elements of CRISPR are positioned relative to one another. Short uh, uh, CRISPR repeats uh, by nature are between 29 and 36 nucleotides. Palindromic refers to the actual sequence, the DNA sequence, within a CRISPR repeat. It's partially palindromic because there are pieces within that repeat that complement one another. And then R stands for repeat. So they're clustered, regularly interspaced, short, partially palindromic DNA repeats. And you had this beautiful visually intriguing and mysterious array of repeats back to back to back to back to back 32 times in his chromosome and it looked interesting but we didn't have any clue as to what it did and what the functionalities may be so we just looked at it, it looked cool, and then we looked away and, and that was it. That was like a very short-lived you know one date only type event. Back in the days People focused primarily on the repeat part, because it was the conserved part, and ironically, people used to think that the spacer part was junk. It was random gibberish that was inconvenient. But by random chance, we saw homology to viral sequences, and we saw them repeatedly, over and over and over and over again. So. A key area of focus for a company like Donisco is to develop great cultures that are resistant to bacteriophage. And one of those eureka moments was that the CRISPR genotype correlated with the grouping determined by the phage sensitivity pattern. So now we had two pieces of the puzzle one piece coming from the genome sequencing, telling us that the repeats are awesome. The spacers are unique and variable, and they show homology to viruses. That's clue number one. And at the other end of the spectrum, we know that those hypervariable sequences are super good to tell what strains share similar bacteriophage susceptibility. And we put those two things together. So we sequence more and more and more strains. And what actually happened is we sequenced strains back in time, back all the way to the 80s. And when we compare and contrast them and align them, they look almost the exact same. Across the whole length of those 2 million ATCs and Gs together, they look 99.9999% identical. And one of those differences is right at the CRISPR locus. One looks longer. There's one more repeat and one more spacer. And the amazing thing was that some of those strains that had evolved over time, the 80s and 90s and so on and so forth, we could tell that the CRISPRs had changed within the time scale of the lab at Danisco. What happened? What is it? and you dig into it, and you dig into it, and you dig into it. So we would like look at that sequence, look for matches of that sequence. And of course, when we sequence those strains of Strethamophilus, we also sequence those painful phages that make our work difficult. So we have the sequences of the virus, and we can tell that the small difference coming in is a piece of DNA that is 100% match to that of the virus that was used to infect the host. Now, it suggests, it doesn't prove anything, that there may be a correlation between the CRISPR content and the ability of the strain to be resistant to the virus. And that prompted us to do a series of three experiments to try to investigate whether there is or not a link between CRISPR and phage resistance. So the first thing that we do is we try to repeat what was done in the 80s and 90s. When we take a strain, that same wild type strain that is gets slaughtered by that phage, and we expose that strain to the same phage, what happens? And then when it's kind of happy and actively growing and multiplying and having the time of its life so to be from a bacterial standpoint, then you expose it to the phage. You let it incubate and what's gonna happen is most of the cells are going to die. But if you give it more time, a small number of bacteria become immunized against the virus. So what you do is you let that grow over time. And then you plate that on a petri dish with great food, great comfort, and let it grow. And multiply, and multiply, and multiply, and multiply enough to make a mountain of bacteria. And if you look into it with enough resolution, you will see a spot of a colony of bacteria that have risen to resist And then what we do is we take those bacteria, this one variant, and those guys we sequence. So what we do is we monitor the CRISPR sequence, that 33 repeats, 32 spacers, and we look at the CRISPR content of the ones that make it we see repeatedly that when the strain becomes resistant, it has acquired a new spacer. And that spacer sequence, the small piece of DNA that gets added on, is a perfect match to the phage that was used to do it. So by then, we now know that there's likely a link between the CRISPR spacer content and phage resistance. That was the first experiment, so we're pretty psyched. It looks pretty convincing, but it's circumstantial. We haven't proven anything. Is a suggestion, it's a clue, that in the process of becoming resistant, it captured like a genetic snapchat. It captured a piece of DNA from the phage that was used to attack it and kill it. And then what we do is we go back to the host and we do the same thing with a different phage. And we see the same thing. When we expose the same wild-type parent strain, it steals a piece of DNA from the phage and extends the CRISPR. And in a kind of a cool, twisted experiment, what we do is we give it a cocktail. It's called a phage cocktail. You blend different kinds of phages together. And we want to see what the host is going to do. And the host picks up a piece of DNA from each one of those phages. We show there's a change between the CRISPR content and phage resistance. But we haven't associated the two. They correlate, but we don't know the causality of it. So you want to show convincingly that the CRISPR spacer content determines, not correlates with, but determines sensitivity or resistance to a virus. So we embark on the second series of experiment If we synthetically add a spacer without the host ever seeing the virus, what happens? We have to clone, using recombinant DNA technologies and techniques, a synthetic CRISPR repeat spacer unit. And we transfer that DNA, that plasmid, into the host. So now, if you add a spacer, you gain resistance to the phage without ever having seen the phage. We've proven when you add the spacer synthetically, you reprogram the CRISPR, so to speak, you become resistant. The CRISPR locus, this repeat, spacer, repeat, spacer, repeat array is oftentimes accompanied by adjacent sequences. CRISPR-associated sequences called Cas genes. And those Cas genes likely code Cas proteins that are physically and genetically next to the CRISPR. And CRISPR, together with Cas, constitute the CRISPR-Cas system. So the question is, if we tinker with those Cas genes, and we disable them. Does it have an impact on the function of CRISPR in providing resistance against the virus? So essentially, you insert a piece of DNA in the middle of a gene to disrupt it, to make it not functional. We didn't know what it was going to do. It was a true unknown. It was a true discovery type experiment. If we knock this gene out and we inactivate this piece of DNA that we don't know what it does, in a system that we don't know how it works, is it going to have an impact or not? And then what impact is it going to have if it does? What we observed is amazing. We show that when you inactivate Cas9 genetically, you lose the ability to be resistant to the virus, though the CRISPR spacer is there. The spacer just being there is not enough. This implicates Cas9 in resistance to the virus. That was like, I, I'm so excited, I can't believe it. Like that's that, that's cool, like that's cool. Like I can talk about it all day, like it's really cool. Like I remember looking at the plate, coming in that morning, opening the incubator and looking at it and like, man, it's gone. Like it's gone. Like by tinkering with this one element, we've broken the CRISPR and we had no idea that it was gonna do anything. We now know Cas genes and the cast proteins they encode are necessary for the CRISPR locus to work. And then, in September 2006, I can go to my management at Denisco and tell them, okay guys, we have now proven through the experiments that we did that CRISPR provides adaptive immunity in bacteria. And eventually we published our paper in March 2007. Exactly 20 years after the original observation of a CRISPR locus in E. coli in 1987. It took 20 years for CRISPR to make it from first observed to substantiated from a biological standpoint. The 2007 paper, from a theoretical standpoint, is so impactful because what this is, is establishing CRISPR as the adaptive immune system in bacteria which nobody thought they had. It's this molecular equivalent, in some ways, of the antibody-antigene reaction that we have as complex vertebrates. It's this transgenerational implication that there is a evolutionary system and mechanism that adapts to its environment and adapts to the phage and strategically evolves over time to overcome a threat. So as a food scientist, and as a foodie in many ways, I like to think of science as an example of how food works. And also food as an example of how science works. And in many ways, to get a masterpiece like CRISPR, it takes a lot of key ingredients you have to have a great recipe in and of itself. You have to have a great cook, a great chef. You have to have the kitchen, the utensils, the raw ingredients, you want some good wine, you need a little bit of salt, but not too much, and then you need to actually do it. Just having those ingredients in and of themselves doesn't guarantee a masterpiece whatsoever. And in the end, there's things you can't control, like the ambiance. And For a masterpiece to be enjoyed, you need to be in the right company and have the right setting and have the right context. And that's what's so compelling about CRISPR is there's so many fantastic pieces to that story. The history of CRISPR. The people involved. The scientists involved. The companies involved. The applications. And that's what makes for a compelling story and a compelling journey. us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.